Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're wrapping up our discussion of H.P. Lovecraft's Shadow Over Innsmouth. But before we get into all that weird stuff, what is going on? Merry Ithmuth, one and all. Not, that, not sure if that lift came out right or not. <laughs> I close enough. I mean, it's clearly not a word that was designed for human tongues. But yes, this episode will be going out uh, just before Christmas. So if if you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. And, and if not, if you're celebrating other holidays this time of year, well, happy one of those. Some of you should have now received The Blasphemous Tome, issue 11. And if you still want to get your hands on a copy, then... We've got some extra copies and we'll be doing a second run of post early in January. So anybody who backs us at the $5 level before the end of December 2023, which is about 10 days after this episode goes out, then uh, you will also receive a hard copy through the post if you're backing us at the $5 level or above. As this episode goes out, we will be around the midpoint in our daily readings, three readings, of Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome, which is our Christmas ghost story reading on the Good Friends server. Once again, it is being organised by Mike Percival Maxwell and is featuring a full cast, which at the time of recording was still pinning down, so I can't make full announcements. If you have missed the first reading, or if you're not able to make any of the readings live, don't worry. Very shortly after this episode goes out, they will start appearing as special episodes in your podcast feed. And now on to our main topic, Shadow of Rinsmouth, Part 6. It's that time. We're wrapping up our discussion of the Shadow of Rinsmouth, and offering some thoughts about how it might inspire our games. One thing that we touched upon back in episode four, and left as an open question to revisit, was what exactly was the point of the Deep Ones pursuing Robert Olmsted? This was something you raised, Paul, which was that there were already rumours throughout the surrounding area that there was a weird stuff going on in Innsmouth, and some people seemed to know hints of the history, and there were all sorts of reports of how weird the people looked and questions about the ancestry. So if all these secrets were, well, maybe not completely open secrets or completely understood, but at least relatively known of the local area, why is it that you've got this one man, Rob Dompster, who's come to town, who has had a word with Zadok Allen, and clearly other people have done so as well, because the clerk at the grocery store mentions that he does talk to people about weird shit sometimes. So again, that's happened. Even the, the clerk at the grocery store knows this. But the locals of Innsmouth haven't done this manhunt haven't taken over the entire town to try to stop anyone leaving that we know of in quite the same manner. 
So what is it that's happened here with Robert Olmsted that has led to such extreme measures? Maybe Lovecraft realised he needed a bit of an action sequence in the story, otherwise it would have been a little bit dull. I don't think it's that. I... No, I think Matt's got a point. I think it, it is to create drama, isn't it? It's Because um, it has, like you say, it hasn't happened with other people. So it's a kind of a construct to, to create some drama. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things here. One is that it's that. It's, it's to create drama. It's the fact that our protagonist is, is in trouble and being chased and he wants to escape because these monstrous things are trying to catch him. But also, in retrospect... And, you know, we pick up on the hints that we get in the story when they sort of talk about his eyes and his look mm. and so on. It's clear, I think, that it's a misunderstanding. Olmsted yeah. thinks they're hunting him to, I don't know, sacrifice him to Dagon or something. Whereas I think in retrospect, we understand in reality what the, the Deep Ones and the, the Innsmouth folk are trying to do is to capture Olmsted because they know he's one of them, right? Because they know he's yeah. one of them. And we don't actually see them threatening him with violence. Exactly, But yeah. it, when it's happening, we get the feel that there's impending violence because that's what you know, Olmsted felt when he was back in town. Yeah, because... We've had this whole elaborate setup to keep Olmsted in town, where they've sabotaged the bus, or at least pretended that it's got mechanical problems, so that he's stuck in Innsmouth overnight. And then he's taken this room at the Gilman house, and he's heard furtive movements and people trying to break into the room. And they're doing it all very stealthily. And of course, yeah, I mean, that is really sinister. And if I think if any of us were in that situation, we'd assume the worst. But like you say, in retrospect, it's easy to see that as being perhaps a, a fairly ham-fisted way of perhaps taking him, you know, at least capturing him so they can do something like take him off to the esoteric order of Dagon and hmm. explain his ancestry to him or something like that. Like you say, there is no physical threat that's ever given to him. And even to the point where when we've got this strange procession that is moving through the marshes at the end, it's almost possible to see that as maybe almost celebratory or at least a, like a, a, a really fucked up welcome wagon that they've gone out there because they're, they're worried about this relative who's freaked out and run out into the marshes and they're going out to try to help him. Yeah, I mean, he's totally terrified by it just because it looks strange to him. That's possibly a misunderstanding on his part. Well, you know, evidently it is. And you mentioned the Order of Dagon there. I mean, the Esoteric Order of Dagon, I think, is probably one of the best cults in Lovecraft's writing. I mean, he doesn't do a great number of cults, really. There's the cult of Cthulhu and so on. And we sort of witness a bit of their, you know, I don't know, down in the is it Louisiana swamps in the cult of Cthulhu. We see that hmm. there's a cult there. But I think even here, we don't see that much of the Esoteric Order, but, oh, you know, we, yeah. we get a bit about them. But I don't know, they're... I guess perhaps because they're not just a group of humans, somehow they kind of transcend just the mundane human cult and they're just a great organisation. Yeah, they've got a cool name. But at the same time, there's not really a whole hell of a lot about them in the story. 
No, no. Countless writers, and particularly in the gaming scene, have gone on and added stuff and elaborated on the order and their beliefs and their widespread nature and so on. But all we really see here is this mysterious organization that's taken over the Masonic Hall and carries on their own rites. We don't really know what these rites involve beyond the Three Oaths of Dagon and we're not really sure from the context in the story what those really involve. Mm. We don't know what their practices are. We don't know what acts of worship they perform. It's easy to assume things like human sacrifice and so on, but that's never explicitly mentioned. No, 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 a lot of it's left to our imagination. I kind of wish... Lovecraft had put a bit more about the esoteric order in there. You know, it's one of these things where it's nice to have the empty space to imagine and it's it's nice to have all the hints and so on. But I think he could have done some really cool stuff if Olmsted mm. had ever actually made it into the esoteric order and was seen one of their rites or something like that. As big an advocate as I am of hinting at stuff and not being too prescriptive, I'd really love to have seen what Lovecraft would have done with something like that. It's weird because maybe your hand mentioned that it's good to have a chase scene and it's good to have an action scene in there. These are things that Lovecraft doesn't really put into his stories much, if at all, outside of this. Mm -hmm. So got riffing on that it'd be nice to see what he would have done if he'd actually started to fill in some of those blanks rather than just leave the vague outlines of the esoteric order as well is it something that we would have gone oh this is this is great we want more of it or would it have fallen flat i i don't know mm, mm. yeah even the name of it is the fact that it's the esoteric order of dagon that hints at mystery cults perhaps or at least a mystical side of things rather than it being a, a straight religion and it might be interesting to see that compared with the cthulhu cult in new orleans because what we see there is very primal and orgiastic it seems to be a very intuitive unintellectual form of worship of these these alien entities but the esoteric order just by what the name implies seems to suggest something very very different in its practices we saw as well with the churches that the deep ones had gone and they'd taken over the churches and changed the worship there and the fact that the esoteric order is based in this masonic hall I do wonder as well whether there's some form of syncretic belief that's come out of this mixture of the Deep Ones and their own beliefs and their own worship and the community into which they integrated themselves. Because if you think about where they came from initially, or at least where the Deep Ones who Obed Mersh first encountered came from in Polynesia, I don't think the practices there would necessarily fit into the model of churches and whatever would go on inside that Masonic Hall. It feels almost like there is this, this fusion of whatever the local human religions and practices are with what the Deep Ones have brought into that community. 
Perhaps so. It certainly portrays the kind of the change of religion. He refers to that several times in the story about how the, the churches have changed their beliefs, become corrupted. Mm. The Christian faith has been kind of run out of, of Innsmouth, it seems. Even though Olmsted doesn't seem to be particularly religious, we kind of get the impression that that's a, a degrading of, of society in some way. The Deep Ones may have driven Christianity out of Innsmouth, but they have taken over the churches for their worship and they're still using things mm. like bells ringing out as part of their services. It, it seems like they've integrated aspects of, or at least the trappings of Christianity, into whatever it is that they've become there. Yeah, so I think the Easteric Order is recognisable as some sort of form of religion, isn't it? Yeah. You look dubious there, Matt. Yeah, I'm just wondering whether when you say about bells being part of Christian trappings, I'm thinking it just from a very sort of pragmatic or very practical viewpoint. It's just, it's a great device for saying, hey, service is on, come join in. Mm. It doesn't necessarily imply that bells are something intrinsically linked with Christianity. I just think it's a very pragmatic use of the tools that are available to them it might not be that they're deliberately incorporating religion just because they're using a tool at their disposal that's where my dubiousness comes from mm. Mm. but if you think about it these are entities who come up out of the sea who have their own forms of worship that don't even necessarily involve buildings and what we consider to be churches but they have come up into this human community. They've taken over the churches, these focal points of Christian worship. They have kept what seems to be the the practice of organized worship within those buildings. So if it were just them entirely holding on to what they had before... It would be easier to imagine Devil Reef, for example, as being a holy site and the centre of their worship than, say, the churches. Why have they taken over the churches? They haven't all undergone the change to, to be able to go out and worship down below Devil Reef, have they? I mean, there's accounts of like Marsh going out, Obed Marsh going out with some of his men to the reef and doing strange rites out there it sort of describes but i guess the churches in town you know they are the buildings that are built for social gatherings so whether or not they take on any of the trappings of christianity those buildings are designed for that purpose you know they're, they're places where people would would gather i wonder whether this is another example of lovecraft parodying real-world religions in his stories, because there is a, a very storied history of Christianity coming to various communities across the world and incorporating local beliefs and places of worship and holy sites into their own practices. Hmm. Everything from like Christmas trees to the trappings of Yule. Hashtag bring back Saturnalia. Exactly, yeah. And countless other pagan holidays and holy images. And this seems to be exactly the same kind of thing potentially going on here, just in reverse, with that happening to Christianity. Which seems like a very Lovecraft thing to do. Mm. And then we have the Deep Ones themselves. There's so much about 
the deep ones that we've picked up from gaming and picked up from other media and so on. But we're seeing a very specific depiction of them here and hearing very specific stories of them here in the shadow of Rinsmith that don't necessarily 100% correspond, as we've seen so many other times in Lovecraft stories, with what we'd expect from our gaming experiences. Are there any particular surprises you found when going through this story as to how deep ones were handled and depicted, or were they pretty much exactly as you'd remembered? There's certainly nothing surprising from my angle that it seemed very much just like, yep, this is pretty much exactly as everything I've met from a gaming perspective. There's no real sudden revelations where I'm thinking, that isn't what's in the game, or this isn't how it worked when I met them on X, Y, or Z scenario that I've played. They seem to be a very overdone, very... Because the Shadow of Rinsmith lays such a good description physically of them and how they behave, it's the most easily to carbon copy into scenarios. There's enough detail here where you can easily just take all these details and throw them into your own context and use them in whatever way you like. That once you've played a few of those scenarios and then you read the story, as it is in my case, I've played it, then read it, that... There isn't any surprise there because it's been done thoroughly so many times. There was no magic or enchantment left for me there. Hmm. There were just odd little bits of description that did surprise me, or at least captured my imagination. There was that throwaway reference to them having very long simian arms, which isn't a depiction we see very often in gaming. There were the ones with the fish heads, which, again, is something we don't necessarily see very often in gaming. And I think just the very impressionistic descriptions that Olmsted gives of that party of them moving through the, the marsh I don't know, it feels very alien and and quite varied in a way that I don't necessarily associate with the depiction of Deep Ones in a lot of the games that I've played. They feel like much more of a diverse species than perhaps I've seen in a lot of the games I've played. Yeah, I think it's easy as when you're running a game to sort of think they're all the same. You know, you've got Deep Ones and you've got Deep One hybrids and deep ones are are like this yeah you know orcs are like this deep ones are like this goblins are like this ghouls are like this and we have to remember that embrace some variety in them and, and try and make them individualized and there are variations on them and i think that makes them all the more interesting really and certainly in terms of the hybrids they can be pretty much completely human in appearance or they can be anywhere on that sliding scale i remember from previous experience having used deep ones in a scenario of mine that there are variations that have been presented in the malice monstorum that have a little bit more than just fishes for heads there's one i recall the blessed of cthulhu which i remember through uh paula curveball when he said <laughs> what, what is this thing when i was running it or after having run it because he hadn't come across it before Is it just the odd placement of tentacles? What is it that makes them particularly weird? The Chosen of Cthulhu that I remember, they were pretty much revered by Cthulhu. There were the more outlandish mutations. I remember the variation I had had one giant eye, had two massive tentacles for arms, and it was almost possessed a kind of psychic power 
that it was seen as almost like a prophet or touched by Cthulhu, that it had mystical capabilities beyond the normal deep one. And here it lists them potentially having like underdeveloped bat-like wings, huh? sinuous fin-tailed bodies. Uh, so it really kind of encourages like, I don't know, just taking those variations and running with them really, because they could be whatever your imagination suggests. It's a little miniature star spawn. <laughs> And also we see, you know, with Joe Sargent, you know, the descriptions of his skin and so mm. on in, in the book. I don't know. There are some things in there that I'd forgotten that the way it describes yeah. it. Uh, it's, it's kind of been really weird. Before we get away completely from the beloved of Cthulhu, however, is there anything in the Malleus that says whether those are completely an invention of the game, whether those come from a story somewhere? Because it sounds like they probably just come from the RPG, but if there are any sources in fiction, I'd, I'd be very interested. I haven't come across them in fiction myself, but as we'll discover next episode, there are so many adaptations and stories out there that I don't think anyone's read them all. There's nothing listed under clear credit or copyright for them. So yeah, yeah it sounds like there are a new invention then. Hmm. Which is kind of cool. But going back to what you were saying a moment ago about Joe Sargent, Paul, I think that's also another place where we see a lot of variation, even within this story, which is it's mentioned at some point that people with deep one blood who go through the change do so at different points during their life that there seem to be all sorts of wild genetic factors at play here and some people seem to go through the change quite early in life some people get to old age and you know mm. it happens then and i guess with the older ones in particular if it's an accumulation of more subtle changes all the way through, then you could get some very strange-looking people by the end of that who still haven't changed enough not to be able to pass for human, but perhaps they've picked up attributes like those very long arms or whatever that are just going to make them look weird. Mm. Or perhaps there are some of those people that are shut away in the houses down near the waterfront. Hmm. And I think it's also implied, isn't it, when Olmsted is talking about his own family, that not everyone in his family has picked up the Innsmouth look. So it does seem like maybe it's a recessive gene or something, or, well, no, it wouldn't be a recessive gene, but it does seem like if you've got people who are the children of hybrids, that perhaps not everyone is going to go through the change, that some will remain human and, and die and be mortal, and others will change as time goes on. That's kind of the impression I get, yeah, yeah. Which could create for kind of a weird family dynamic. Hmm, for sure. Okay, so we're about halfway through the episode now. This is a great time to go and grab a coffee, put the kettle on, or... Indulge in whatever beverage you so wish. And while you're waiting for that kettle to boil, because I know mine takes an age to do so, here's something to listen to and keep you occupied while you wait. Have a nice refreshing glass of brine. Did you know there are show notes for every episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias? You can find them at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find links to our blog, merchandise and Patreon.
Well, hopefully with nice cup of hot steaming something in hand. Steaming brine may be a very horrible smell I'm conjuring there. Time to get back to the next half of the episode with what we might steal for our gaming. Well, I'd say deep ones are like a, a mainstay of Call of Cthulhu gaming. You know, deep ones mm. and Innsmouth and all that related stuff crops up in lots of fiction and it crops up in lots of gaming as well. Have we used them much in our games? Yeah, an awful lot. But before we get into the details of that, for me, Deep Ones, I think, are just embedded in my mind as the quintessential Call of Cthulhu monster, mm. just for no other reason than I remember the first time I got hold of Call of Cthulhu, that second edition box set 40 years ago, and reading through it, and the first monsters I saw mentioned, I, I'm pretty sure in an example of play, was deep ones. There was some mention in an example of play of someone, I think, in the house, and there were sea caves or tunnels down below, and they heard sinister croaking, and it was talking about the roles necessary to pick up on what was going on. But it was this feeling of these weird fish-like, frog-like humanoids there down below this house just waiting to come up. That was my my first, I think, kind of frisson when reading Call of Cthulhu, just that possibility there. And I'd not read The Shadow of Rinsmith at that stage, so these were entirely new to me. And I think, yeah, that just cemented them in my mind as a cornerstone of Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I think because they bridge humans and deep ones and they look a bit like sea devils from doctor who they look a bit like mm. a creature from the black lagoon and they're located at the seaside you know a seaside well not as yeah, it's not a beach town particularly but you know what i mean they're, mm. they're on a coastside town which is very evocative as well if you just got monsters well they're just monsters you know shoggoths are great but you can't really sit down and have a cup of tea with one um whereas Anything that is part human and part monstrous, then I think that that's much cool. So like ghouls, for example, mm. particularly in Lovecraft, in um, Pikmin's model, we get this transition of Pikmin, and then we meet him later in Dream Quest for Unknown Kanath when he's become a ghoul. So that makes them, I think, more interesting as well. Not only does it make them more interesting, it also makes them much more gameable because... Mm. They're clearly on a human scale. So in terms of gaming, we can talk to them and they're more comparable with humans in terms of physical ability, you know, whether that be combat or, or, or social interaction or, or whatever that might be. So it puts them on our scale and they're something that we can interact with more effectively. And there's something that can send agents into human society more effectively mm. as well so it just makes it there's so much more to play with i think when you've got adversaries like that there's definitely something to be said for having an opponent which is the same kind of size as you it gives you a whole different feel like man versus gug versus uh man versus deep <laughs> one. i know which one i'd rather play with in a cage fight <laughs> well in that traditional game of can you punch it or should I punch it? Right, okay. This is what Pulp Cthulhu is for. 
I can't imagine any of us would last too long against the deep one in a cage fight either. <laughs> I don't know. I can go ape shit on anything. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd put my money on Matt. <laughs> Funny you should mention Pulp Cthulhu because that's the one time I have used them with Call of Cthulhu is in a Pulp Cthulhu scenario. Oh, cool. So what was that? What was going on there? It's in the Pulp Cthulhu book, my scenario waiting for the hurricane. Ah, yes, of course. Yes, yes. But not in Innsmouth. No, though, there are references to Innsmouth in the background of the story that's going on. So it does have that connection to it, but it is very much a, a Deep One story. Mm. But when I think about how Deep Ones were presented in the early scenarios I played, and I think this was probably more to do with the scenarios that my friends were writing rather than the published material, but I'm, I'm sure there was some of it in the published material at the time, Deep Ones were kind of the orcs of Call of Cthulhu. In that, yes, I mean, all right, there's the very human scale of them. But at the same time, they seem to be like the humanoid monsters you could kill without feeling too bad about it. And I think that's changed an awful lot in presentation in the game over the years. Much as there has been in D&D with humanizing orcs and other monsters, other humanoid monsters, and not seeing certain humanoid races in the game as being inherently evil or inherently monstrous, I think there's perhaps been some of that in Call of Cthulhu. At least I've played a few scenarios where you encounter Deep Ones, and particularly Deep One hybrids, who are entirely sympathetic characters. Yeah, I think when you go back and look at those scenarios from the early 80s, I mean, some of them, they're products of their time. And we're talking like 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about a time when the majority of people were coming from a D&D background and a D&D of the time, you know, D&D itself has changed tremendously in, in mm. terms of the kind of approach that people take to the portrayal of, you know, monsters and other beings and so on. Call of Cthulhu was a difficult thing to get your head around because if you just played D&D and so on, it was like, well, how are we going to play a role-playing game that where you play regular people? Well, how's that yeah. going to work? And how are you going to play a game where you're not going into some kind of dungeon type analog so you look at some of those old scenarios and it is very much like there's a monster in the first room and there's a corridor and there's a there's a hidden room and there's you know, maybe another monster and it, it feels like you're almost going it's not a dungeon but it almost feels like a, a version of a dungeon almost mm-hmm. and i mean we were looking at the first issue of dagon the, the fanzine from the early 80s and you know this is called a cthulhu scenario and that that features deep ones and hmm. i mean it's it's a product of its time it's uh it's an interesting read but i think we would do things quite differently now it's interesting contrasting that approach to deep ones in those early days of call of cthulhu gaming with what we see in the story because i think the presentation we get now is probably closer to Lovecraft's intent in the story, in that the characters there are more ambiguous. I mean, Robert Olmsted, for example, isn't inherently evil because he is a Deep One hybrid. He's portrayed as being just like anyone else until he realizes what he is and he starts getting these sort of psychic visions and dreams and so on that inform him of what awaits him. Mm. So there's nothing really monstrous about him. And I think that 
applies very much to how I see Deep Ones in the game, that, yes, they're alien, but that doesn't necessarily make them monsters. But I think this story, probably more than any other, captures my imagination because it feels like it's kind of got a broader scope to it somehow. So if you compare it with the Dunwich Horror, say, Mm. that's a family in a small town and there's implications other people had kind of some kind of arcane knowledge and took part in the the ceremonies up on sentinel hill or whatever but it's very much you know the waitley family and old man waitley wizard waitley and and so on and then armitage goes in and the threat is kind of resolved oh it might come back one day but the lingering threat is that you know there'll be other people out there that know those rights and you know there's that hidden knowledge in the necronomicon and and armitage is kind of looking after that but here we've got a whole town full of people and there's a whole it's not just them there's there's other communities out at the sea and on in other parts of the world and that people can turn into them, you know, if they've got that thing in their DNA. There just seems so much more scope and the way that that then links in to the Cthulhu mythos. We don't really get too much about Cthulhu in this, but Mm. there's almost an implication that that they're linked through Dagon to Cthulhu in that greater scale of the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, because it's implied that... Well, in fact, it's not even implied. It's stated that there are communities like Johannes Ley, these uh, undersea cities filled with deep ones all over the world. So yeah. that implies that there are other communities like Innsmouth, perhaps dotted just about anywhere coastal you could imagine, which I think means that if you're inspired by the shadow of Rinsmith and the the deep ones and so on, but you don't necessarily want to use Innsmouth because, well, A, it's destroyed in the story and there's an awful lot that you perhaps have to deal with as a consequence from that, but also perhaps you want to set it somewhere local to you and your players, then I think that just gives you license. As long as you're not living in a landlocked country, you could probably have your own local version of Innsmouth anywhere on the coastline. Yeah. I was going to say, those deep ones of Arizona, they're well known for their uh, their proliferation <laughs> of the area. The one I can think of in, in Call of Cthulhu that's probably been elaborated more than any other deep one colony, because I think there is one that's mentioned in passing as being somewhere off the coast of Cornwall, in the Atlantic. That's only a passing reference. The one that's given any more in-depth detail is in the Bermuda Triangle book, that there's supposed to be a a colony that exists down there, which again, I I mentioned in passing. I'm not sure if it made it into the final version of it, but I know I definitely mentioned it in the initial draft of Waiting for the Hurricane. That's in in the Bermuda Triangle source book. Hmm. Lots of consonants and apostrophes put together in a way I cannot attempt to even (laughs) uh, pronounce. But there's also, at least in one published Call of Cthulhu scenario, the idea of freshwater deep ones as well. I don't want to give spoilers for the scenario, but there's one that involves the Great Lakes, where there's a struggling colony of deep ones there trying to adapt to life in fresh water, and it causing them all sorts of problems. And that's a twist I kind of liked, that you've got this adaptable 
organism that mm. perhaps is trying to find new biomes to enter. And I think you could have fun with that, having deep ones turning up in unexpected places, learning how to survive out of their element. Because, I mean, that's what people do. People yeah. manage to live all over the world, and why shouldn't deep ones? Yeah. Got a weird image in my mind then thinking of deep ones of the Sahara versus the sand dwellers. Who will win when the deep ones try and move in on their turf or rather their sand dune? Just imagining deep ones like old-fashioned spacemen in science fiction serials wearing these environmental suits with goldfish bowls full of water on their heads wandering around the desert. Wasn't it UFO that they had those kind of suits where they were full of liquid? Oh, quite possibly. I think it was. I haven't seen UFO for about 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond the Deep Ones, have we, any of us, made much use of Innsmouth as a location? Only by reference. I've never set anything there. Well, we've played things there. Mm -hmm. We've played uh, Escape from Innsmouth, it's called, isn't it, Matt? Yep, that's the, the one. campaign we've played. I mean, spoilers, but it, it starts off as a kind of retelling, somewhat a retelling of uh, Shadow of Rinsmouth, but then goes beyond that in quite an interesting way in the second part of the scenario, I think, the way that all the campaign that unfolds and uh, you take part in, well, you, there's the raid going on and so on. It's a very innovative way that it sets it up as well. It's maybe a bit of a daunting challenge for the GM at first to potentially run it, but it has a hell of a payoff as, as a player as we went through it. I thought it was great. It was really mm. kind of riveting, very different approach to, to telling a story as well, telling a campaign, really. Yeah. I mean, that's not available for 7th Ed, but we played that some years ago, didn't we? Yeah, it was quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've certainly used Innsmouth in a number of games myself. Sometimes I've had to improvise Innsmouth because players have unexpectedly decided to have their investigators go there. But other times I've, I've run scenarios that have been set there and tried to elaborate on them. And I think it's always useful going back to the story and picking up on the bits there. But I think it's quite an easy community to build up on based on what's in that story because we get so much detail of the kinds of stuff that's there that it makes it easy to extrapolate. I mean, it gives you a map and everything. I mean, not literally in the story, but in his notes or something, as there's a sketch map. Mm. You pretty much get a tour of the town and you go to a number of key locations. It's pretty much a source book in itself. Yeah. And the fact that he elaborates on the types of businesses and the different people that are there and the kinds of outsiders who come into and work in Innsmouth and the exchanges with the surrounding community and so on, there's so much there that if you're using Innsmouth, at least before the raid, in a game that, yeah, you, you can, I think, very easily bring it to life just from what's in the story, even if you don't have something like Escape from Innsmouth to draw upon. Well, speaking about Before the Fall, as you put it, uh, it's a great name for a book. In fact, it was, <laughs> was a great name for a book. There is the Before the Fall collection of scenarios that takes place before you run Escape from Innsmouth. Hmm. There are a few dotted all over the place, and there's one of my favourites, which uh, may not be the best PG-13 material. It's definitely edging towards a slightly higher age category. 
is um, mm-hmm. Bless the Beasts and the Children. Oh, what's that? That's the one that we played that involves Falcon Point, which is the the town that's just to the south of Innsmouth, oh. across the bay, which has the kids being taken away into the waves by the Deep Ones. Oh, sorry. So is that in Before the Fall? No, it's in one of the other Arkham County collections. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So for listeners, some of these books that me and Matt are talking about here, some of these scenarios and, and collections are, are pretty are quite old books. Mm. And as I said, they're not available at present, I think. I don't think they're available. PDFs might be up on Drive Through RPG. They might well be, uh, but they're not they haven't been revised for seventh ed. No. Yeah. But when we're thinking about the stuff that we've written ourselves, are there any particular things beyond Innsmouth and the Deep Ones that we've particularly drawn upon or been influenced by in the story ourselves? Beyond Innsmouth and the Deep Ones, I don't know. I mean, there's that that whole idea of characters changing, you know, physically hmm. changing, uh, which is always good. For me, I think The Shadow of Innsmouth has influenced the stuff I've written more than any other Lovecraft story. And a big part of that is because I ran a campaign at the club, the Milton Keynes role-playing club, oh gosh, back in 2007. I had to check my notes to work out when it was, which was a primetime adventures campaign called Time and Tide. Mm-hmm. Were either of you in that? I'm trying to remember who the players were. I think I was in the start, maybe yeah. the first one. Yeah, well, there was only one. No, but I mean the first game. Because it went on for a few sessions, I think. I was thinking maybe in the, the first session, I seem to think. can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember either. I mean, it was 16 years ago. But <laughs> the idea of Time and Tide was that it was set in well, the, the present day, but not 16 years ago. And it was about a revived Innsmouth. It was about a community that had been built on the ruins of Innsmouth in the present day, that had kind of lost touch with what Innsmouth used to be. And there was a very deep divide between the people who remembered Innsmouth, or at least had, not not personally necessarily, but who had knowledge of what Innsmouth was and of the Deep Ones and so on, and the people who had just come there because it was a nice seaside community and they, they were moving there. Mm. And... It was about that uncomfortable history coming to life. And I remember when I set out to run it, my initial thought was, oh, yeah, I want to make this a very sort of weird, I think very X-File-ish and, and maybe a bit of Twin Peaks thrown in type game. And it got me reading The Shadow of Rinsmouth for the first time since I'd been a teenager, because I'd read it when I first picked up Call of Cthulhu back in 83 and read all the Lovecraft I could get my hands on. And it was a very different experience rereading at that time round, because on the first page, there's all that talk of concentration camps for a start. Mm. And as I was reading through it, I realized it was a very different story than I remembered. And it completely changed my perception of Innsmouth and Deep Ones and, and so on, to the extent where I ended up writing a whole bunch of convention scenarios, which built on that. I can't remember whether you've played any of those, Matt, but I know Paul's played some mm. of the Time and Tide games. 
I think that's where I encountered it. That I don't remember off the top of my head playing the primetime version of it, but I definitely remember the standalone scenarios after that, yes. Yeah, because what I did after that was I adapted them to use the hot war mechanics because I wanted to make them much more about interpersonal conflicts and about differing agendas. So what I did was I set out and I created this um, timeline following the raid on Innsmouth that dealt with the survivors of Innsmouth who had scattered to the winds, or some of them had gone off to the camps and survived, some of them had escaped Innsmouth and had gone off and found new lives within the fabric of American society. And it was basically every 10 years or so. I mean, there's a, a different scenario in each decade, the 20th century, and I've, I've extended it a little bit into the 21st now. And it's sort of this mixture of the ongoing attempt for survival amongst the deep ones of Innsmouth, the conflicts with human society and the way that reflects different aspects of the changing society in the US throughout the 20th century. And yeah, I've, I've had quite a lot of fun with those. I've said this a number of times where I've, I've thought about writing them up for publication. And the thing that derailed me is something that we're going to talk about in the next episode, which is as I was gearing up to write them up about 10 years ago, I encountered a story that had just been published this in 2014 called The Litany of Earth by Ruth Anna Emrys, which covers some of the same grounds. We'll talk about it next time, but now that I've read more of her work, I'm satisfied that it's actually very different. But, yeah, it was just this sudden realisation that if I ever did publish them, people would just think I was ripping her off. And so it kind of took the wind out of my sails. But I've I've started trying to resurrect them again in, in recent years and started running them at conventions and writing a few new ones. So who, who knows? Maybe I'll find the enthusiasm to get going with it again. And with Hot War coming back in print as well might help. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that is very exciting. We've not really mentioned that on the, the podcast, but there was the announcement a little while back that Malcolm Craig is working with John Hodgson to do a new edition of both Hot War and Cold City, and they will be coming back into print after quite a long hiatus. Time and Tide. That influenced some of the other stuff that I've done in Call of Cthulhu since then, and there was a campaign I developed for Chaosium a while back, which was called Flotsam and Jetsam, which, while it's a very different thing than Time and Tide, Time and Tide certainly influenced that an awful lot, mm. with you know the main theme of it being to put a more human face on Deep One hybrids. The general theme of the campaign which, I mean, might be a bit of a spoiler, but I mean, the name probably implies an awful lot. The main idea that I sent out to the writers for it was that you know, the connection to it should be Deep One hybrids who have grown up in isolation from the larger community of Innsmouth, who perhaps have lost their ancestral roots of the connections to what they are, much like Robert Olmsted, and are now kind of struggling with some kind of sense of identity which struck me as being perhaps the most powerful theme to come out of the story. Now, having gone over the story in so much depth and picked apart all the different elements there, are there any parts of it now that you can see 
influencing you or things that you're tempted to explore and develop in your own way? At the moment, no. Like I said, I think they've been done a lot already. If I'd want to do it, I'd want to do something that is completely different. Mm. And that may not involve going back to the original story and doing something completely fresh and different with them. And at the minute, there's nothing that's kind of sparking in my imagination that's saying, oh, I've definitely got to do this, because I can think of stuff that I'd rather do with other creatures in the mythos. That's not to say that that time won't come, but it's just that spark of inspiration to use Deep Ones in a interesting and fun and different tangential way just hasn't manifested itself to me yet. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with that, Matt. I think we've just spent quite a long time in Innsmouth, and it's been really interesting I don't have a bursting urge to like set games there right now, but I think it's a, a, a brilliant setting. It's kind of got everything. It's got, you know, it's a great setting. There's some great hooks to bring people into it. There's all sorts of things you can think of to tie investigators into it and reasons for investigators to go there. You can set it in different periods. You know, you can have it because we get history with it. Mm. We get Zadok Allen's history of Innsmouth, and then we get lots of fiction about what's happened since then, or, mm. you know, or we can just create that ourselves. You know, we can have a modern day version of Innsmouth or, you know, Innsmouth in the 70s or, or whatever, and, and decide ourselves what that could have become. So, and the whole scale of, of characters and, and, and so on that you can have there that the book kind of give inspiration for is, is, is huge. So, it's a great canvas to work with right now and i'm not like rushing to do something with it but i think once i've had a break from it then it's somewhere i would like to do something with i think yeah i think one of the cool things about the story is that there are these elements so many elements that are sketched out and hinted at and not really developed and these are the kinds of prime things that game designers like to seize upon and make their own and there are these things like the esoteric order of dagon i know it's been fleshed out in the game but if you're just going back to the story i think you could potentially have fun trying to come up with your own spin of what exactly the esoteric order is and what it wants I think there's been a tendency, Call of Cthulhu, to turn it into some kind of global conspiracy and this large-scale cult and so on. But I think perhaps presenting it as something very sporadant and local is also interesting. It doesn't have to be this big sinister entity. I mean, it's bad enough that it is this comparatively contained cult controlling a town. It's a local order for local deep ones. Has it been portrayed as a world-threatening order or, or organisation or whatever? Yeah, it's turned up in a few Call of Cthulhu publications, is that, yeah. Mm. For example, in Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, I think, is very much that. Mm. And there are locations like Devil Reef and Yohannithalay, which we see hints of in the story. And Devil Reef in particular, I think you could turn into quite a cool location in the game. Again, it's developed in Escape from Innsmouth, but that doesn't stop you coming up with your own versions of it. I don't remember going there in our playthrough, apart from aiming torpedoes at it. Yeah. <laughs> Now that I say it, I'm not entirely sure I could be wrong on that. 
But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think Innsmouth itself is a really interesting place and has got potential. Mm, definitely. The part of it that I'd be most tempted to explore, and I have done a little bit in the Time Tired games, but not properly, is the aspect of what happens after the raid. When you have people, well, the residents of Innsmouth, you know, deep ones, or, or properly speculators coming in trying to do something with the area, perhaps coming in, taking advantage of, of the area, or trying to rebuild a sense of community in the area, take it back to what it was. And I think they're both interesting approaches. There's a lot of potential conflict there. And I very much like the idea of a game where you are perhaps playing deep on hybrids who are trying to restore Innsmouth, trying to save what's left of your community and bring it back. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Martin Frost Czar. And also thanks to Will Harker. And thank you to Richard McAllister. And thank you to Jeff Thurwell. Thank you also to the singular Christopher, with a K. And thank you to Chris Curry. And thanks to Zaza Pinard. Hey, a name here I recognise as well. Thank you very much to Carol Tierney. Hello, Carol. And if we did mess up any of your names, please do let us know and we will give them another shot. And also a reminder that all you lovely Patreon backers get access to another, no, not one, but two alternate versions of the show. On Patreon, we put out an advert-free version of the show for our Patreon backers, and we also release an unedited version of the show, so you can hear it as we hear it, <laughs> if you so wish. And get a whole new appreciation for how much work goes into editing the damn thing. <laughs> yeah. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would be absolutely delighted if you told people about it, whether this means leaving a review somewhere where people might find reviews, or just mentioning it to people on social media if it seems like the kind of thing they'd be into. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. It's a, a Merry Christmas and a Glub Glub from me. A ho 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 from me. And a isn't it New Year yet from me. Blasphemoustomes.com Bah humbug.